2 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, it says, After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I... Where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that he hated, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. Now she had on a robe of many colors, for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. And his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now... Hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke 
to his brother Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass, after two full years, that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hatzor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shears, please. Let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him. So he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now. When Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded, and then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's son, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Then Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming as your servant said, so it is. So it was as soon as he had finished speaking that the king's sons indeed came. And they lifted up their voice and wept. Also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amehud, king of Jeshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Jeshur and was there for three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. In 2 Samuel... As we've looked at the life of David, we've seen the triumphs of David, the king, in chapters 1 through 10, and the troubles of David as king in chapters 11 through 12. Those troubles have included troubles with temptation. That's chapters 11 and 12. And now we see those troubles escalating to include family in verses 13 in chapters 13 through 18 and then in chapters 19 through the end of the book the nation and so that's actually through chapters 19 through 20 now as we've been studying the life and times of David 
We've seen him go through his different circumstances. We've seen David the shepherd, David the singer, David the soldier, David the sought. Remember when he was running for his life. David the sinner, David the sovereign. And now we see David the sorrowful. David has murdered a faithful soldier. He's impregnated his wife. He's lost the baby. And now we have this sordid tale of Amnon and Tamar and Absalom's revenge. And so the chapter begins with rape in verses 1 through 19, continues with revenge in verses 20 through 39, and we see something not only dramatic, but disturbing. How one man's desire will lead to another woman's defiling, but it will bring disgrace and eventually death, because that's exactly what sin does. We learn that even in the New Testament, that lust, when it conceives, brings forth sin and sin death. Sexual abuse statistics are frightening. I spent the early part of my life working for the Department of Social Services and had to deal with all kinds of abusive circumstances. According to R-A-I-N-N, that stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, somewhere in America a woman is raped every two minutes. One in six women and one in 33 men will be the victim of sexual assault sometime in their lifetime. So when a group as large as this group has gathered together, almost certainly way more than just a few of you have experienced this horror. College-age women are four times more likely to be sexually assaulted. In 2007, there were 248,300 victims of rape, attempted rape, or sexual assault. And by the way, those figures do not include victims 12 years of age or younger. 60% of rapes are not reported to the police. About 73% of rape victims know their assailant. And what's even more disturbing, only about 6% of rapists will ever spend a single day in jail. Sin takes its toll. A horror. Some people think that the consequences for sin is some sort of Old Testament idea, but it's not true. We learn over and over and over again. What a person sows, that also they will reap. As a matter of fact, one Bible commentator wrote, David's story ought to be a reminder that one of the ways in which God punishes us is by allowing our children to copy our sins. Yeah, that should put a shiver up your spine. It did me. Why is this horrible tale of rape and incest and murder in the Bible. You might be thinking, to provide inspiration for -for made-for-TV movies? I don't think so. Let me help you think about the chapter as a whole as we begin to go through the chapter rather quickly. 
Remember that the story is in part a fulfillment of the prophecy of Nathan in the earlier chapter that the sword would not depart from David's house. Remember when we did have the opportunity to look together in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, when David was being judged, if you will, when Nathan confronted him, it says in verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. When we were in chapter 12 and I reminded you, for those of you foolish enough to think, well, David did things and and everything turned out okay for him. And I reminded you, we're going to be reading these chapters And you're going to discover something. That the whole sordid thing is going to create a mechanism, a chain reaction of such pain and such sorrow. That if he he had the ability to see into the future all of the horrific things that were going to happen to his children, he would have said, kill me now. Just kill me now. And so the story is in part the fulfillment of the prophecy, but it's also going to provide a backdrop to the terrible conflict that's going to emerge between Absalom and his father, David. In a few chapters, David is going to come close to being unseated from the throne. And remember, remember, remember that the rebellion and the usurpation began with the rape of Absalom's sister. And also Amnon would have been first in line for the throne. He was David's oldest living son. According to some Bible scholars, David had a son that was older who somehow didn't survive childhood. Then Amnon would have been the heir to the throne. In other words, Amnon, this Amnon, is the one who slated to succeed David. Absalom is David's third son. And the chapter helps the reader understand why neither son are going to be good candidates to succeed their father as king. In other words, when you look at David as king and then when you think about the future of Israel, you're going to discover something that neither of these kids are are going to be good for the future. But we also see something else that private acts can have global consequences. Most of you remember... A former famous president and a young intern. And remember, there was a, 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 there was a gigantic debate. Does it matter what you do in your private life? Does your private behavior reveal your very real character? And are there consequences that private conduct also has an effect on professional conduct? We don't have to go all the way back to President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. We can just fast forward into the now. And each of you, I'm sure, if you watch the news regularly, can cite at least five different groups of people whose lives have unraveled because of sexual immorality. Many in our culture believe that probing one's character is a violation of personal privacy. But think about it. Governments and business and church would do well to think about who they hire. Because who we are inevitably will determine what we do. 
And you might argue, well, if that's the case, then no one should hold public office. No one is worthy of the job of being the pastor. No one should provide leadership for a local congregation. No. God changes people. Jesus changes people. In order to have a new world, we need new people. We need people who are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, whose sins are cleansed and who are washed in the blood of the Lamb and who can walk in humility and honesty and holiness. And so we begin with Amnon and Tamar. Lust, not love. Look again in verse 1. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister. And by the way, I've already told you that when the Bible draws particular attention to a person's appearance, it typically means drop dead, hold your breath, gorgeous. It means your palms start sweating and your glands start secreting and... Think of this person. She is knock down gorgeous. Whose name was Tamar. Now you might think, well that's not such a cool name. Well in the Hebrew it means, who knows? No, it means palm. Now remember, what is a palm noted for? It's slender. It's slender and elegant. So her name means slender and elegant. And she's beautiful. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Read, emotionally stalked her. Now the story of Amnon and Tamar may be very old, but it has a modern ring, doesn't it? You look at it and you think, wow. So far, when I think about David, this great character in the Bible, murderer, adulterer, and has real problems with his children. All of a sudden, your life isn't looking as dramatic as you first thought. I'm sure that David loved his son. And I'm sure that Amnon had a problem with lust. Just like his dad. Amnon was controlled by lust and passion and sensuality. And as you can imagine, this lust, this passion, this sensuality made him sick. In other words, he locks on and develops this emotional attachment. And he begins to feed this attachment to the point where all he can think about, all he can obsess about is this particular girl. And remember that in our culture and society, virtual porn is only a few clicks away from every computer terminal. We live in a sensual and we live in a sexual society. And people may argue that the media doesn't promote the environment of self and lust and passion, that the media simply reflects a culture that is already preoccupied with self and lust and passion. But I think both are true, don't you? That it's this cycle that they feed one another. The media feeds the culture and the culture feeds the media and they feed off of each other. And the media takes greater risks and dumps more filth into the cultural stream because 
we as a culture and a society have learned to drink from the cesspool of sensuality so much so that we become numb and so we see in verse 2 it says Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick for she was a virgin and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her in other words the cultural circumstances required that he not be able to act on his passions at that particular point it says but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. This would mean that Jonadab is Amnon and Absalom's cousin. They're cousins. So they probably grew up together. They're going out together. And note what the text says. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. One Bible translation has this translated shrewd. If you understand what the text is saying, he clearly understands what's motivating the royal princes in verses 32 and 33. And like all too many friends, Jonadab is willing to encourage and ingratiate himself. He's finding a way to allow his friend and cousin to make good on his wicked plans. In other words, here's what he's basically saying. Dude, what's up? What's going on with you? You want to do something. Oh, it doesn't really matter if it's wrong. Now think about what's happening. A true friend will rebuke you when you want to do something evil. That's what it says in Proverbs chapter 27 verse 6. So again, this is one of the reasons why it becomes such an important thing for you to think carefully about who you hang out with. Remember, the Bible says that wicked company corrupts morals. And make no mistake about it, you will eventually become like the people that you hang out with. And if you hang out with people who say, hey, look, dude, I'm, I'm not here to judge you. You want to drink? Drink. You want to smoke medical marijuana? By all means. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to determine what's right for you or what's wrong for you. Hey, you have needs. Now think about the way this conversation is going. And he said to him, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? I'm concerned about you. I think you might have an eating disorder. Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. Isn't it funny how your friends always have a plan to help you get what you know doesn't belong to you? Well, you know, this would be wrong and, well, yeah, yeah, it's wrong. But let me tell you exactly how you can get what you want. And then he says, then Amnon lay down and pretend to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. It's all innocent. We're brothers. We're family. 
It's no big deal. That's what family does. They take care of one another. And David sent home to Tamar saying, now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. And so she's going there under whose orders? Her dad. Her father has asked her to go and minister to her brother. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. They had almost like the ancient Hebrew version of the George Foreman grill. They would have the coals, and they would take a sheet, and then they would bake it right there in his sight. It's sort of like, you know, made right to order. She took the pan and placed them before him, but he refused to eat. No, no, I'm way too sick for all of that. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. Now, you've got to understand something. Tamar has no idea that this is coming. And I'm going to suggest to you that she clearly knows not only that this is wrong, and and I'm going to suggest also that Amnon may not have anticipated his sister's rejection. Like Joseph in Egypt who rejected the, the advances of Potiphar's wife, Tamar is going to reject his advances for several good reasons. Number one, having sex with your half-brother or half-sister violates the moral standards of Israel. And he goes so, she goes so far as to say this. She says, look, this is a bad idea on so, on so many different levels. But she says, no, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. It's wrong. It's wrong. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. And so when you stop and you think about what is happening in the passage, she says, look, number one, it's wrong. Number two, it's going to disgrace you. Do you have any idea the series of events that you're going to set in motion by making this happen? And then she even appeals and says, brother, if you don't care that it's wrong, if you don't care that it's going to hurt you, do you understand that this is going to shame me? She says, and and I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. She asks her brother, hey, look, speak to our father. Now, you have to understand something. A young virgin princess in the court of David would have usually been married off to a wealthy family or to a foreign king in order to help forge alliances between nations. This girl isn't just simply a girl. She is part of the king's household. And because she is a part of the king's household, she 
exists in part, not just for her family, but for the entire kingdom. Now, scholars have debated the question, could Amnon have married Tamar? In other words, when she says, look, talk to our father and under, you know, if if you're going to have me, at least have me under different circumstances. And now clearly the Old Testament law forbids marriage between siblings. In Leviticus 18, 9, in verse 11, in chapter 20, verse 17, Deuteronomy 27, 22, over and over again, the Mosaic law prohibited the close association of close relatives. Some people point to Genesis chapter 20, verse 12, as a precedent. Abraham clearly was married to his half-sister. But again, the laws regarding the prohibitions of, of incest aren't given until the book of Leviticus. Rabbinic writers who have made comment on this particular passage have suggested that Tamar, even though she is brother to Absalom, she is in fact the illegitimate uh, um, child and because she is illegitimate the marriage could have taken place whatever the case however we read it Amnon doesn't want to marry her he wants to humiliate her now that's you've you've got to read between the lines he is the heir to the throne His brother is the next in line for the throne. And it could be that something else is taking place. That this isn't just some sort of obsession with a beautiful woman. But there's an undercurrent that is taking place between the brothers. That perhaps he wants to humiliate her in order to get even somehow with his brother. Who knows? But Amnon forces himself upon his sister, in verse 14, however, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her, and he lay with her. You know, every day, someone loses their dignity. Every single moment of every single day, even while I am giving this message, in the neighborhood in which we live and in the community in which we live, there's a series of circumstances that are taking place where one person is pleading with another person not to do this kind of wicked thing. Tamar reminds her brother, Rape is a crime, it's wicked, it's evil. She begs her brother to think about their reputations. They're going to be disgraced. Their reputation is going to be ruined. People are going to look at him like a fool. So she urges him, control your lust. Get permission to marry. Pastor Chuck Smith used to comment about this particular passage of scripture. And he would remind young girls whenever he had an opportunity to speak to them, Hey, look, some things are worth waiting for. Some things are worth preserving. Some things are worth protecting. Your reputation matters. Lou Priolo in his book, The Heart of Anger, gives a list of 25 characteristics of a fool. Now, when the Bible speaks of a fool, it's not talking about a person who's ignorant or stupid. It's speaking about a person who is devoid of a moral mindset, who doesn't have a sense of rootedness in what's right and what's wrong. And in his book, The Heart of Anger, he lists 25 characteristics of a fool. 
that are taken from the book of Proverbs. And some of the characteristics include a fool despises wisdom and instruction, according to Proverbs 1.7. A fool hates knowledge, Proverbs 1.22. A fool grieves his mother, Proverbs 10.2. A fool enjoys devising mischief, uh, Proverbs 10.23. A fool is right in his own eyes, Proverbs 12.15. He goes on, is quick to anger, Proverbs 12.16. Hates to depart from evil, Proverbs 13.19. Deceitful, Proverbs 14.8. Arrogant and careless, Proverbs 14.16. Rejects his father's instructions, 15.5. Despises his mom and dad, or both, 15.20. Doesn't respond well to discipline, 17.10. Doesn't understand wisdom, 17.16. Has a worldly focus or a carnal set of values, that's 17.24. Grieves his parents, 17.25. Hurts his parents, 17.25. Won't discuss any viewpoint other than his own, 18.2. Provokes others to strife and anger by his words, 18.6. A smart mouth usually gets him into trouble, 18.7. Does this sound familiar at all to you? Is quarrelsome or contentious? 23 is a spendthrift 2120 repeats his folly or foolishness 2611 in other words he refuses to learn from his mistakes trusts his own heart 2826 can't resolve conflicts 299 gives full vent to his anger 2911 those are the characteristics of a fool those are the the characteristics of a person who is bent on their own destruction. And isn't it interesting? Look at how quickly lust turns to loathing in verse 15. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the obsession with which he had obsessed about her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. You can almost read in the text, You disgust me. You disgust me. Now how did that happen? How does passion, how does obsession, how does lust turn so quickly into hatred? You know what's interesting about the text? We're not given an explanation. We're not told, are we? The text itself doesn't say to us, and this is why it happened. I'm reluctant to venture some possible explanations. Clearly, my explanations aren't a part of the scripture, but let's just suggest a couple. Was he suddenly overwhelmed with guilt and disgust by his own conscience? That's a possibility. Did Tamar's earlier warnings finally take their toll and Amnon is riddled with guilt? Maybe. Was this just another case of a guy who sees a gal that he can't have and then he uses her and throws her away like some commodity to use for his own lust? His one Bible writer says his throwing her out was both a refusal to acknowledge his own guilt and a suggestion that she was the aggressor in the affair, unquote. That's the way it often is in the case of sexual abuse, isn't it? The abuser blames the abused 
for the abuse. Can you see that? You know, I think that this is one of the reasons why so many sex crimes go unreported. The victim is made to believe that he or she is the reason for the assault. The victim is told, you made me do this. You provoked me. You did this. Other reasons include the belief that it's a private or a personal matter and the victim fears reprisal from the assailant. And I've already told you that only 40% of sexual assaults are reported and about 28% of the victims are raped by husbands or boyfriends, 35% by acquaintances, 5% by other relatives. The net result, look what it says. So she said to him, no, indeed, This evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. In other words, here's her response. In wickedness, you've disregarded everything that I've said. You've made the decision to ruin your life and now to ruin my life. And so here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to do the honorable and decent thing Under these circumstances. And it says in verse 17. At the end of verse 16. He wouldn't listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him. And said here put this woman out away from me. And bolt the door behind her. Now she had on a robe of many colors. For the king's virgin daughters wore such an apparel. Some Bible scholars think. And and people who are familiar with manners and customs of this particular time period believe that the daughters of the kings wore a special garment that was very colorful, whose sleeves extended all the way down to her wrists. And so, um, in other words, it was something so that she would be very identifiable as a member of the royal household. And uh, it says, then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head. And she went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. When it says desolate, it doesn't mean just devastated. It means in a circumstance where the prospects of her future were completely gone. That's what it means. It means now she can't enter into any kind of decent, godly, God-honoring relationship. When it says she put ashes on her head and, and tore her robe of many colors and laid her hand on her head and she went away crying. Some well-meaning psychologist might want to label this behavior. Well, you know what she's doing? She's adopting post-sexual abuse behavior. And hey, the term refers to symptomatic behaviors that are initially adaptive, but over time have become contextually inappropriate components of the victim's adult personality. In other words, what they're saying is what she's doing is she's responding in exactly the way that you would culturally respond under these circumstances. And and guess what? Everybody knows the truth. 
everybody knows that she's been sexually assaulted. And in verse 20, it says, And Absalom, her brother, said, Has he done this thing? Hold your peace. But all the while, he has something in mind. That he is going to do something about this injustice. By the way, victims of sexual assault are three times more likely to suffer from depression. Victims of assault are six times more likely to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. They're 13 times more likely to abuse alcohol. They're 26 more times likely to abuse drugs. They're four times more likely to contemplate suicide. And in verse 21... It's the heart of the passage. Look what it says. But when David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Really? Look, note what it doesn't say. He was angry and he did something. He was angry and he did. Doesn't seem that he did anything. He was angry. But guess what? Being angry isn't always the best way to deal with sin, is it? The Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. Anger serves a very important function in the life of the believer. Anger is supposed to provide you with enough energy in order to deal with the very real issue at hand. So here's the big question. Why didn't David discipline his son? Why did he do nothing? Remember, we've just read chapter 12. Remember, we've just gone at length through Psalm 51. Is there conviction and confession available? Is there the ability to confess your sin and respond and receive forgiveness and hope? The rape, even though it's a horrible crime it's not a capital crime and Amnon's rape of an unattached virgin called for a forced marriage and the payment of a bride price according to Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 28 and 29 according to the Bible even though the Bible prohibits the the relationship of close relatives if she is in fact an illegitimate child and the Bible allows for it then she then it forces a marriage the payment of a bride price is made so that she has some standing in the community but David doesn't even do that he does nothing and remember Amnon is now the oldest son and Amnon is David's pride and joy Here's a question for you. What's the first rule of teaching a parakeet how to talk? The answer, you have to have a larger vocabulary than the parakeet. Question, what's the first rule for disciplining children? Answer, you must have more discipline than the child. Real love requires real discipline. And when a son or a daughter fails to receive discipline for transgressions, they're left with a horrible, horrible thought. And you know what the horrible thought is? My sin doesn't matter. My wickedness doesn't matter. My transgression 
doesn't matter. And it could be that David may have been struggling with punishing the child for sins that he was guilty of committing. David had sex with Bathsheba and killed her husband. Yes, Amnon has done a bad thing, but at least it wasn't as bad as what David did. You know, we can fall into the same trap. We raise our children and we see our children conducting themselves in very similar ways that we conducted ourselves. Little Johnny smokes a cigarette. Well, at least it isn't as bad as smoking marijuana. Little Johnny smokes marijuana. Well, at least it's medical marijuana. Johnny sells illegal drugs. That's non-medical marijuana. Well, at least he isn't executing people in gangs fashion. Where do you draw the line? It's hard for a parent to punish a child for sins that the parent has committed. Again, a Bible writer writes, Children take their cues from their parents. How honest they are. How they treat people. And what are their values. And what are their goals. The child assumes it's alright to do what the parents do. When the model for the act has been the parent, it's very difficult to criticize the child. And there are hundreds of reasons why David may have not have acted. But in the end, that's the most important thing. He didn't act. What happened with Amnon and Absalom is perhaps one of the most powerful arguments that you have to deal with problems. That you have to deal with them even though they are traumatic and even though they are painful and even though they are embarrassing and even though they are humiliating. There's certain things that you just can't overlook. David knew he was wrong. And it took him a long time to come to the conclusion that he was wrong. But when he came to the conclusion, he was willing to repent. And he was willing to seek forgiveness and help. And so when our children sin, we need to take sides against them. And say, this isn't me against you necessarily. This is me for the Lord. This is me for the Lord. That doesn't mean we cease to love our children or advocate for our children. But we can't live in a world where we refuse to allow sin to go unnoticed. And look at how it ends. And it came to pass after two full years, in verse 23, that Absalom had sheep shears in Balchatzor. This is way to the north, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. When you see the word sheep shears in Balchatzor, read spring break for the Hebrew children. This is the time when you let your hair go. This is party time. This is spring break for the Hebrew children. And Absalom was capable of patient, calculated hatred. That's what he has. It's a sustained hatred. Some people get mad and they get over it. And some people stay quiet and stay patient and they wait for the moment. They wait for the moment that they can destroy the person who has hurt them. He has cultivated. Absalom has tended. He has nurtured. He has fed his hatred for his brother. 
and he's going to commit cold, calculated murder. Cain hated his brother Abel. The Lord warned us about hatred in the heart leading to murder. In Matthew 5.21, Jesus said, You've heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means airhead. You know, we laugh, but it really does. It means airhead. It means that there's nothing between your ears shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. He has waited two years to exact revenge. And if David, by the way, had accepted the invitation to the sheep shearing event, I'm sure that Absalom would have waited. Hey, dad's coming. Remember, he invites, he, he invites th these people. The dad can't come. But if the dad had said, I'm going to come, Absalom would have said, your life has just been spared. You have another day to live. But the day will come when I will find you and dad won't protect you and I will kill you. Now I want you to think this through because we might be a little more sympathetic if Absalom had killed his brother in a fit of rage over the poor treatment of his sister. But this is a careful plot over a long period of time to kill his brother and it reveals something that you need to know, not only about this particular passage, but about how the rest of 2 Samuel is going to unfold. It reveals a deep character flaw. There is something fundamentally wrong. So profoundly wrong that it's going to disqualify him for leadership. You know, we're in trouble as a nation. And we're in trouble as a culture. And we're in trouble as a society. And I wish I could say to you that we were just fine as a church. But I would be less than honest. There are over 125,000 children who are victims of substantiated abuse. That doesn't include those who are being hurt and abused that go unverified and unreported. Child abuse in America, according to the statistics, 81% white, 18% black. 1% other races. It's across the board. And it's pervasive. Do you know what the leading cause of death in children under the age of five is? It's disease. You know what the second leading cause of death in children under the age of five is? Their parents kill them. There's something terribly wrong. When we skip down to the end of the chapter, look what it says. Then Absalom fled. He doesn't go to a city of refuge. You want to know why? Because the city of refuge is not available to him. City of refuge is only available to the innocent. He's guilty of murder. And the young man who was keeping watch lifted up his eyes and looked. And there many people were coming down the road in the hillside. And Jonadab said to the king... Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servants had said, so it was. In other words, they give David this false sense of drama and terror in, in, in order for him to feel at least somewhat okay about what has happened. And then in verse 37 it says, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Jeshur. Do you know who that is? That is his grandfather. That is his mother's 
father, who is the king of Jeshur. And Jeshur is a pagan city with pagan beliefs and pagan practices. Over the next couple of chapters, we're going to see the scene unfold as David tries to create a mechanism of reconciliation. It says, And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. Now, I want you to think this through. David, in his mind, is thinking, I have done that which is unforgivable. I have done that which is wicked. But there was forgiveness and reconciliation available to me. He is toying in his heart and in his mind is the same kind of forgiveness and reconciliation available to his son. But we're going to talk about that in the next chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're reminded of the law of sowing and reaping. Lord, we know that if we live a life of deceit and terror, if we live a life of selfishness and self-indulgence, that it makes perfect sense that people are going to turn away from us. Lord, we know that in the New Testament it says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he'll also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will reap everlasting life. Lord, we know that we will become like the people that we hang out with. And we know, Lord, that we will become like the thing that we think about most. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who, for whatever reason, has decided not to think about you most and think about your love most and your forgiveness most and your hope most. Lord, I pray for the person who's locked in an endless battle with their own passion, with their own lust. And when they get exactly what they want, how they despise it and hate it. Lord, I pray for that person who has drank from every well imaginable, has tried to satisfy their thirst in every imaginable way, only to walk away still thirsty. Lord, I pray that they would come to the fountain of living water where there's real forgiveness, where there's true forgiveness, living water available through David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray as parents that we wouldn't make the mistake of allowing our kids to do whatever they want. Lord, we pray that we would not make the mistake of having a child-centered home instead of a Christ-centered home. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.